This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. James Cross is a partner at the global law firm KL Gates. He's a deal junkie and loves the rush of MA. He loves helping founders and owners sell their lives' work and build some close, long lasting relationships in the process. He spent seven years at Reed Smith, where he helped build out their private equity practice. The creative services space is generally not the most attractive to investors because they like things like recurring revenue, uh, low customer concentration, less reliance on individuals generating the revenue for the company. But for the investors that really get the creative services space, they see massive opportunities for the right kinds of businesses. We discuss all things agency and creative services, but also other sectors outside the creative services space as well that are also attractive to investors data businesses and in the food sector, logistics, uh, fintech, as you would imagine. Facilities management and cleaning businesses are obviously really sexy right now for obvious reasons. If you are remotely interested in what buyers are looking for when buying creative services businesses, yes, obviously the usual things like low customer concentration, clients that are institutionalized and not just in the hands of a few key people, digital capability obviously goes without saying. But also something that isn't talked about enough is the strength of that second tier of management. So who are the future leaders of the agency and, you know, and what is the company doing to sort of build in that succession planning? If you're interested in how to build value back into your agency because of the losses from COVID-19, the good and the bad and the ugly of selling your business, then this is the conversation for you. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with James Cross. James Cross is a partner at KNL Gates, focusing on all things M&A. They are a fully integrated global law firm with lawyers located across five continents. They represent a broad array of leading global corporations in every major industry, capital markets, participants, and ambitious middle market and emerging growth companies. They also serve public sector entities such as educational institutions, philanthropic organizations and individuals. Their lawyers counsel clients on their most sophisticated legal challenges in all areas of corporate regulatory law, as well as litigation. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. James Cross, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Great. Thanks, Nathan. I've been uh, looking forward to uh, to this for a while and uh, um, uh, tr we'll try and get over the feeling that uh, I'm a little bit like David Moyes following in the footsteps of Sir Alex Ferguson during <laughs> the uh, fantastic uh, previous podcast, which I really, yeah. really enjoyed. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. He was he was great, and um, and to be honest, I don't I didn't think David Moyes did that badly. To be honest, so uh, <laughs> he did get sacked. Though, didn't he? he did get sacked. <laughs> Unfairly, in my opinion, but we digress. Um, yeah, I've been looking forward to speaking to you as well. You you get your LPC from Nottingham Law School in 2002. What first attracted you to the legal profession? Uh, to be honest, um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't really know uh, what to do. Um, I, uh, I, I remember asking my parents, um, my, my dad's, uh, opinion was that I should do a vocational degree um, and, uh, and his reasoning was that that would mean I was earning money sooner 
Uh, and I said, Dad, that sounds good. W what on earth is a vocational degree? <laughs> he said uh, law or accountancy. And I wasn't good at maths. So, uh, so law it was um, for me. Um, so pretty, uh, pretty sort of straightforward. <laughs> you, you got your training contracts some, some time ago in the early 2000s. Training contracts are really quite hard to come by these days. How did you get your start? Yeah, they um, they are horribly difficult to come by. Uh, you're absolutely right, and and the thing I would say is that they are even harder to get now than they were when I was studying. Uh, it's a it's a real battle. Uh, a lot of applications, uh, a lot of rejections. Sometimes not even rejections. It, it, it's just silence because um, nothing comes back. Mm. So a, a, a lot of failure, and it's a it's a tough tough journey and even tougher for, for people now. Um, I, um, I, I guess I got lucky uh, and um, secured a training contract at, at a, a firm that was local to me where I was living at the time, a good regional firm. And, and that was my entry into the profession. Um, and uh, yeah, it's tough, tough to get in. And, and I'd encourage everyone to, to be persistent and just, just get, a, get anything they can and, uh, and, and, and begin their journey. Your, your career is very focused around M&A um, and acquisitions. W what is it about the deal-making side of law that, that attracts you? Yeah, I, I guess I found an area of law that was the, the least um, heavy on law. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm a deal junkie. I love the rush of, of M&A. Uh, I love helping uh, people achieve their commercial objectives. Um, I love sitting alongside those commercial people uh, while we negotiate, um, helping helping a founder owner who's created his his baby, his wonderful business, then uh, sell that business. Um, you know, often their their life's work, um, helping them get a good result. Um, it's uh, it's just a really compelling area of law, I think, and and, and where you mm. feel like you can. Um, you can do some good stuff and, and you can make close and long lasting relationships with these people. Hmm, really interesting. Well, this, it's an area that um, I don't, I don't know very well at all. Why would I? Um, but also, but also one that I would, I, I'd, I've been learning more and more about in recent weeks and months. And I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by it, especially in the context of COVID because on one hand, um, you know, a lot of organizations are sort of seeing or a lot of legal firms are seeing sort of uh, um, sort of investors reducing their their M&A activity. But on the other hand, um, money is cheap at the moment, interest rates are relatively low, those organizations, those investors that have a lot of cash to spare, it's probably a good time to go shopping. So I can probably see the pluses and minuses of being uh, sort of in the deal making business at, at, at this point in time. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a very uh, cyclical um, sector to work in. There are highs and lows. And uh, when there is some certainty in the market, um, you know, as there was post-election, when, when there was a, a decent majority government, uh, that that is a time when, when people are comfortable to buy things and invest. And um, when there's less certainty, they typically slow down their investments. But as you, as you 
um, as you mentioned, that there are still people who will invest at those times, um, no matter what stage that the cycle is at and what is going on on, a, on an economic basis. So as we mentioned earlier, you spent seven years at the storied law firm Reed Smith. What did you take away from that experience that you're now using with your career at k Gates? I, that, that was an exciting opportunity uh, and quite unusual for, for lawyers and, and um, law firms because we we created and grew a practice uh, at Reed Smith because we were we were building out then a, uh, a dedicated private equity practice um, that that was exciting um, we did some things well in, in in doing that we did others less well um, and I, I guess like an entrepreneur would um, I try to learn from those experiences and um, and do better uh, somewhere else and, and 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 bring the good into my new role and uh, and try and leave the uh, try and leave the bad behind. You joined KNL Gates in in 2018. Um, as we mentioned, there are global law firm representing global corporations in every pretty much every major industry, capital markets, uh, ambitious middle market companies, and, and growing companies as well. Um, you've got specialisms in technology, manufacturing, energy, transport, telecoms, financial services. Just go down the list. What what first attracted you to them in the, in 2018? Yeah, I think um, I think it was the, the the substance of the firm, coupled with the the opportunity, uh, as you say, big firm, global platform, 44 offices, um, but uh, arguably a bit. A bit underdeveloped in, in in private equity, which is what I do. Um, so having the opportunity to have that support around me and to, to grow um, a practice and and uh, and as we said, take some of the good from having done that before and leave the bad behind. And that was uh, an exciting entrepreneurial opportunity. Hmm. So so tell us a little bit about your your work on the um, on the M and A side uh, at KNL Gates. You represent institutional investors looking for attractive opportunities in the creative services space what are some of the biggest biggest challenges or problems that your clients have and how do you help solve them structurally i think it's fair to say that it's the the creative services space is not a straightforward space for a number of investors Uh, investors typically like things like recurring revenue um, Mm. low customer concentration um, less reliance on individuals within a company generating the revenue for that company. Mm. Uh, so the, the creative services space doesn't always lend itself uh, well with those general investor preferences. Uh, but for those investors who are committed to the space, they tend to have a deep understanding of the space uh, and and the issues if we call them issues and and they don't necessarily see these things as problems they they just uh understand that 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 is part and parcel of investing in a creative services space Hmm. so as we're sitting here five months or six months into covid19 as as we stand at at the moment uh far more uncertainty and volatility in, in the marketplace um, presumably, as, as we said earlier, for those in, investors that have deep pockets and longer time horizons, 
Um, it might be a good time to buy uh, now, but I would understand that a lot of uh, institutions are also quite wary and nervous of investing in creative services businesses at the moment. Uh, give us a little bit of an, an idea of sort of what the lay of the land is uh, from the start of COVID-19 and sort of where are we today? I think if you look at all the different types of investors or, or buyer in, in, in creative services, then uh, we have a much longer list of, of those potential investors and buyers now than, than we've had for, or probably ever had actually. Um, mm. the, the corporate finance advisors used to have a list of, you know, maybe 50 or so uh, investors, buyers, but, but it's probably 10 times that now. Um, and, and, you know, names that, names that, many people will be uh, familiar with. So so I'd say generally um, on a sort of non, non-COVID-19 um, impacted basis that you've got a, a longer list now, you've got more potential investors uh, and, and, and more buyers. And certainly there's been some impact on that through COVID-19. Hmm. So essentially... Bain, Deloitte, go down the list, and I guess the consultancies and the technology buyers, um, not just private equity, but also sort of Asian buyers as well. I, I know that a lot of en- new entrants have come into the market um, in, in recent years. Um, g- give us an idea of sort of what buyers are typically looking for when they're purchasing creative services businesses. You mentioned that generally, uh, if it's not in creative services, they're looking for uh, more scalable, repeatable businesses, so uh, SaaS businesses, um, uh, technology businesses generally would would be relatively more attractive. But when it comes to creative services businesses, what what makes an attractive agency or creative services business? Uh, c- certainly, um, certainly, digital and 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 the the move to digitalization is. Uh, is a big a big factor and, and will make that um, that agency a lot more attractive. Um, then some things around the economics, uh, low customer concentration, not not relying on one or two key relationships that could 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 change uh, at any point. Um, relationships being institutionalized rather than. Uh, belonging to you know, one or two individual employees who, who again could, mm. uh, could could walk at any time, um, recurring revenue if possible. Mm. Um, it, obviously, management is is fundamental. A good management team, um, mm. but but sometimes forgotten and but equally important is is a good second tier management team as well. Just so there's. There's some succession plan um, in in a period of years to, to move from the, the sort of current top managers down to a, um, a second tier um, management. Um, yeah, so so I got a sort of predictable um, list of uh, of factors that, that institutional investors will look at. Mm, really fascinating. And and how do we make sure that the investors that you're working on behalf of on behalf of a patient capital, you know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about shareholder value and, and focusing on the next quarter instead of the next decade. 
how do sellers make sure that they're attracting and working with the right sort of investors who want to be owners in their companies and not just looking to make a fast buck or pound or yen? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, incredibly difficult to to do that. Um, I think getting good advisors is is important and helpful. Um, Looking deeply at that investor and buyer researching them is important uh, it, it, when, when when did they raise their last fund um, how much is left in that fund to spend what's the typical hold period uh, who who from that that organization are you dealing with how senior are they um, are they on the investment committee uh, which they ideally would be, because then they'll be uh, very important uh, at that at that fund. Um, are they likely to stick around and remain involved, or will you be passed to to, to somebody else who you might not have a personal relationship with? Mm. Um, ask questions, take references uh, from advisors, and and also from other companies that that those investors have invested in or 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 acquired i think i think it's fair to say that the market always knows uh, and and you just need to do a bit of digging um into what the market will tell you about a particular party and and you should get to the truth quite quickly mm, really fascinating Let, let's talk about other sectors that are sort of quite attractive to investors today, especially in, in light of COVID-19. Uh, food delivery, I would imagine, is, is relatively quite an invest, uh, a, a interesting and lucrative sector at the moment. Supermarkets, um, anything to doing with anything to do with, you know, people working from home, uh, techno Zoom and, and collaborative services like that. Talk a little bit about what the environment looks like at the moment more broadly outside of creative services and um, what are the more attractive sectors that investors are looking into? Uh, Technology, as you say, is leading the way. So uh, deep deep technology, med tech, ed tech, um, fintech, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. all of which are very attractive uh, to to investors. businesses that are rich in intellectual property, growing their users, um, growing their IP portfolio, growing their revenue, um, all very attractive. Um, uh, Data businesses um, working at the moment on an interesting uh, data startup in the food sector. Um, and, And I think that's a very attractive area at the moment for uh, for investors, you, you mentioned food delivery. I think that's that's spot on. Uh, I just did an investment for a client in a, a brilliant business called Buy Me Technologies, which mm. uh, uh, is involved in in food delivery for customers from supermarkets like Aldi and uh, and Lidl, and, uh, and is making a real splash uh, in 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 that sector. Um, anything around logistics. Uh, I find it interesting that all of a sudden facilities management and, huh. and yeah. services sure. have, become, have become sexy. You know, mm. 
who'd have thought if in February somebody somebody would have said that a cleaning business is crazy, um, <laughs> they'd have been laughed at. But but now yeah. you know that now who's laughing? <laughs> mm, yeah. Because, because looking after a supermarket, keeping it open, keeping the fridges running, um, uh, deep cleaning public spaces. Uh, it, 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 that is fundamental and, uh, and, and, and very important. Um, mm, really interesting. Who would have thought cleaning businesses would have become sexy? But yeah, that's, that's where we are right now. Um, let's talk a little bit about COVID-19 and your response to it. Um, I say your response, meaning KNL Gates, using the framework of respond, reimagine and recover. I'm interested to know, in the early days, how did KNL Gates initially respond to the pandemic? How have you reimagined your business subsequently? And talk a little bit about what the future looks like. Talk a little bit about um, recovery from a standpoint of what you think the th next three, six, nine, twelve months looks like. Honestly, we've not done much differently. Uh, we're fortunate in that we're debt-free um, and, and we as partners capitalise the business. We went into the pandemic with a pretty strong uh, balance sheet and, and cash in, in the bank. We've, um, we've since cut uh, discretionary spend as much as we can and, and we've been relying on, on our pistons that are, that are up, if you like, um, in, in uh, the litigation department, for example, and, and the restructuring uh, department, whilst uh, areas like mine, like M and A, are um, are down, and, and certain jurisdictions have done better than others. So, um, so across the board, we've been doing okay. Um, also, um, Bill Gates's father is is a founding partner of our firm, so we're very tech focused. Huh. Our technology platform. Sure. Um, was already strong and robust and, and better than uh, many of our competitors. So we were pretty well placed for, for remote working and, uh, and, and closing mm. deals. Um, arguably, uh, we, we could have been a bit more aggressive with, with cost cutting and, and uh, making changes, but that's not really who we are. We're, we're, we're pretty conservative and uh, we do okay um, in the bad times and we do okay in the good times. Mm, really, really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the sale process because I know you work quite closely with the guys at SI Partners. Um, talk a little bit about where you begin and they end or where they begin and, and you end. Um, and maybe also talk a little bit about what the typical sale process looks like from the beginning um, and what can founders best do to prepare themselves and their organisations for it. I think I think the first thing that that they can ensure is is that there's a unanimous um, decision to to sell and clear objectives across um, the, the shareholders in, in what they want to achieve. Um, sometimes easier said than done, and of course, if you've got one founder, that's not a problem because uh, because it's whatever he or she wants. Um, uh, one of the first things you would do is a Appoint your advisors, and, and typically you mm. would begin by appointing your um, your corporate finance advisor, your uh, your SI partners, um, before you then appointed your um, your legal advisors, 
um, you would also probably have uh, some uh, financial and tax uh, support as well through the process. So you, you appoint them um, probably around the same time as you appoint your uh, your legal advisors. Um, and uh, I think, being honest, the, the, the most crucial appointment there probably is the um, the, the the SI partners, the corporate finance advisors. Mm. They really then walk you through the rest of the process. Um, will help you think about, do you need any additional support as a team, you're either on the transaction, doing uh, things like uh, preparing a data room where you gather all the information on the business ready for buyers to look at, or whether you need help on the day-to-day -day business um, while you're working a bit more on, on, on the transaction. So that that's definitely worth um, thinking about the the CF advisor, the corporate finance advisor will work up a, uh, a buyer list. Um, they'll work with you to prepare uh, a, a, an information memorandum, um, a document that, that uh, gives a little bit of information on the, the business and, and perhaps temps, uh, temps offers from, um, from parties. Uh, and they will they will also help shape the right uh, structure for the process. Um, there, there is a uh, quite a well-trodden path where um, that information memorandum goes out to a number of people who sign uh, a non-disclosure agreement, uh, indicative offers are put forward, um, then a group of those people go through to the, the next round of a process and get a bit more information and and, and then they have to re-offer um, until eventually one of those parties uh, is, is granted exclusivity, um, i.e. given a period of time in which to uh, further diligence the business and, and, uh, and execute um, legally binding documentation for, for the transaction. But there are plenty of variables of that as well. That's not always the right way to... Sure. To, to do it, um, the advisor might say, you know, this is the right buyer for you. Let's just go straight to them. Um, or, you know, these are the only two. Let's go to those two. Um, there, there are different nuanced ways to, um, to, 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 to do it. But that's a sort of broad, um, um, a broad structure. And the thing I would say is for, for, for founders, for managers, just don't underestimate how long um, the process can take, how absolutely exhausting it can be um, being pulled oh. in a, so, how, yes, Sorry. How long can it take? Um, well, in, in the right... Is, is there an average? I mean... Yeah. In the right circumstances, it, it, it can happen pretty quickly. If there's a need for it to happen pretty quickly, it can happen, um, you know, maybe three months... But I think huh. that the reality is often a lot longer. It's you know it's six, nine, twelve months. Um, it, uh, it 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 takes some time to get the advisors on board, get the information together, warm up the um, the potential buyers, um, give them the right messaging, let them get their boards excited about the opportunity as well. It, it um it, yeah it all it all takes quite a lot of time and. Um, and 
uh, that's that's tough for managers, I think, because they obviously have to keep the, the day-to-day business going whilst they've got this huge distraction going on. This other thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> really fascinating. And, I, and I'm sure in, in this environment of COVID-19, it's made even more challenging. You know, there are so many more agencies that are uh, struggling right now or, or distressed businesses, and that possibly makes them look even more attractive from a from an investment perspective but maybe they're not as valuable as they you know they wouldn't get as much for their organization or their agencies as, as they would have before covid-19 so perhaps they're holding on to uh on onto their business for a little bit longer until they're maybe in a, a stronger financial position um talk talk a little bit about sort of you know what distressed businesses or distressed agencies can do to sort of protect their agencies or maybe sort of build more value into their businesses during this very difficult, difficult time. What have you seen? Um, I've, I've seen a, a laser focus on, on cash. Uh, uh, people are being very protective uh, over cash. They've, uh, they've drawn down all cash facilities available to them and, uh, taken advantage of any uh, any government uh, assistance that that is on offer, um, cutting uh, expenditure as much as as possible. Um, maybe maybe paying suppliers a little bit you know, a little bit later, a little bit slower, um, whilst um, doing their best to to chase up the monies coming in again to help with cash flow. Um, Better financial uh, reporting, uh, um, looking at monthly management accounts in, in these circumstances just just isn't quick enough. I think um, people are looking on a on a daily basis now at, uh, um, at the, the numbers of, of the business, in particular that that um, that cash balance. So um, I, th- I think I think it's, it's a time when people are being very inward looking because. Uh, they need to protect what they've got and, and, and make sure that as we come out of it, this that they've that they've survived and, and they've got a, a good business to hopefully go through some M and A when um, when, mm-hmm. when times are better. I mean, if if you really do need to do M and A now, or you really do need investment now, you are not necessarily going to get the most favourable terms. Um, sure. So yeah, if, 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 if you can delay, I think it's worth delaying. I see. Really, really fascinating. One of the interesting things that I heard from uh, Doug Kessler, who uh, he's the uh, creative director and, and founding partner of Velocity Partners. They sold their stake to Next15 um, a few years ago. He He said really interestingly that he was surprised about how fair the sale process was um, before going into it. He said that he thought that it will be this really uh, knives out, dog eat dog. They'll try and beat you down on price as much as possible and sort of extract as much value from you as 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 as, as they can because they're hard nosed business people that are focused on on the bottom line. And he was surprised about how the emphasis on fairness of all parties, whether whether it be SI partners, the legal firm involved at the time, and and themselves, um, that was the really surprising thing from from his point of view. 
Yeah, I I, I think it, that's that's really good, and 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 he's had good good experiences. Uh, I would say that most people's experiences are in line with with that, but certainly not all. And um, and what affects that, I think, is 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 the the principles involved, the, the principles who are involved, and and um, and the. the the culture of the people, the culture of the, the, the buyer and seller, um, because you you don't always get such a, a, a clean process with with goodwill on both sides and, and a, a desire to to get things done together in partnership. It, it can be more confrontational than that, and you can see mm. um, people trying to to get one over, uh, if you like. Um, on on the other it's not it's not good to see it mm. certainly happens and um and you know i, I mentioned uh, a, a piston that's up in our business it's the litigation team and um and and some of that is 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 post m a litigation it's um it's mm. people thinking they've bought something uh, in one form and and six 12 months later finding out that they've got something different because maybe a a warranty, a contractual promise wasn't wasn't true, or some of the information they were given wasn't um, wasn't correct. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I hope that is the majority um, experience that that, um, that that he's expressed, but uh, but it's certainly not unanimous, unfortunately. Really, really fascinating, James. Just just bringing the interview towards a. Uh towards a close now let's get into everyone's favorite questions these are the questions that i ask all of my guests so i'm really excited to ask you some of them as well a bit more personal questions about you the individual um let's start with our favorite one tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience you know i, I fail all the time I've, I've probably failed 10 times today already and, uh, and it's, it's not right. even the end of the day um, uh, <laughs> My, my my life is full of failure no we, no big ones i'd say but but thousands mm. of um of, of, of small ones. miniature failures um, right and I, and I guess we just try not to repeat um failures because that's that's the the the, the worst thing i mean it, it's not quite answering the question but but i i i did find out um quite early in my career that that my um, probably naturally quite introverted behaviour was uh, a marketing disaster for, uh, for 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 my um, aspiring career as as, as an M and A lawyer. So, um, you know, how did I huh. deal with that? Well, I just I just took myself out of my comfort zone and tried to uh, do a lot of marketing and and and, and um, sort of put myself, I guess, in that previous situation of failure and. And, and said, you know, sure. you've got to do something about this. You've got to sort it out. And, and the the funny thing now is, I absolutely love marketing, and I'm completely comfortable in those in those situations. So, um, uh, yeah. you know, we we can turn failure on its head. Really fascinating. Tell us something we don't know about James Cross. Um, some something something. Um, few people know, particularly in my in my career, and mm -hmm. perhaps perhaps they don't necessarily want to know. Would be that uh, 
uh, at university, I was uh, president of the uh, university football club. And, uh, and I have to say, uh, even, um, even 20 odd years on, um, that was a really uh, proud moment for me and actually pretty formative yeah. as well in, uh, in, in sort of my personality and, and um, development. So it doesn't, doesn't quite appear on the CV, but, uh, but yeah. that was a great, great but in your personal CV. Yeah. Your, your legacy as, as, as president, <laughs> what is it? I wrote, um, I wrote this little, little book, uh, this, this little guide on, uh, on, uh, on what to do and, and all the sort of admin tasks and booking minibuses for matches and booking referees and, and the, the, the social events and all that stuff. So I, I tried to put pen to paper um, on, on, on sort of process of, of what you were meant to do. Although, although I did find out about three years later, it was lost. So, <laughs> um, so it was a short lived legacy. Tell us about some of the books that are your favorites that you've read over the years or that you keep on going back to time and time again, uh, sort of fiction, nonfiction, business related, non-business related, whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm not a big uh, not a big business um, book uh, reader. It, it, it's a it's a slightly cliched answer in terms of um, in terms of books, but nineteen eighty four by George Orwell mm. was oh, well. one of the very mm. few books I've read that just totally um, uh, captivated me, and, and I and my mind was lost in it. I, I felt like I was living. Um, living that out uh, as, as I was reading it, so that even years and years later, really still um, sticks in the mind. Um, and a, a more recent read, um, which I enjoyed, was was Young Stalin by uh, Simon Sebastian Fure. Mm. Um, I, I kind of like Russian history, but but actually, I find really interesting um, learning about uh, people and. And how they have become what they've become, you know, nature versus nurture. Sure. And uh, you know, particularly a character like that who you know, was pretty, pretty monstrous, really, and did some awful things. And, and you sort of look, sure. you know, how, how can a human being become like that? What what's happened? Yeah. To to make him that way. And when you look at his upbringing, his environment, you can very easily see why someone like that became the person that he became. I think you can. I think that's right. He he was he was he had a tough tough life. He was he was basically a gangster. Um, very early on, was was involved in in, in all sorts of, uh, of bad things and um, and probably didn't have great influences in his, in his life at that stage and, and uh, it, yeah, it all, all spirals. Hmm. Really fascinating. Um, last, last couple of questions and then I'll, I'll let you go. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to corporate finance, uh, well, to M and A, should I say to law and the legal profession? I, I've been so lucky, Nathan. I, uh, I've worked with some really fantastic people. Um, the the first uh, mentor that springs to mind was was a guy called Brandon Ransley, who um, uh, became the the UK leader of a, of a big law firm called Dentons. He 
he had every skill you could ever want. He was smart. He was nice. He was commercial. He was likable. Um, mm. He was phenomenal at mathematics as well, which is a pretty wow. pretty odd thing for oh. lawyers. So we're, you know, we're, we're really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> he's got everything. Uh, um, he's a good guy. You know, if you met him, you couldn't you couldn't be annoyed. Uh, he's uh, really um, and. <laughs> Yeah, so I, he was he was my my first mentor. Still in touch with him. Great guy. Um, uh, then um, a guy called Ed Harris, who um, was just technically brilliant, uh, drafting and, and, and letter of the law stuff, just absolutely phenomenal. Um, great guy called Matt Reese, who is the most genuine person you could ever meet. Very relationship driven. Uh, does the most amazing job for his clients because he because he cares and and gets to know his clients very, very deeply. Um, and then probably more recently, uh, a guy called Perry Yam, uh, who, you know, what a marketeer that man is. He's, he's just absolutely uh, mm. phenomenal at marketing, a complete machine, um, very, very um, effective and, and good fun as well. He was, he's, he's, was good fun to be around. Hmm. Last couple of questions. What advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who comes to you and says that they want to start their career in the legal profession and become an M and A lawyer? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, think long and hard. Um, <laughs> uh, I think. Um, I think if, if, if it's if it's what if it's what you really want to do. Um, then um, be be persistent. Um, don't don't give up on the first the first fifty rejections that that you get. <laughs> you, you you probably will, and that's normal, and that's no reflection on you. And do not take that personally. Um, and uh, yeah, just, I mean, it's funny actually. It makes me think. It makes me think a little bit of um, the the advice that my parents in law gave me recently when I. Um, when I, I, I said to them, um, they're coming up to their 50th wedding anniversary, um, which wow. is just amazing. And I said, what's, what's the secret to, to, to being happily married for 50 years? And they said, uh, patience and tolerance. Um, so mm. I, you know, I guess in, in beginning our journeys, we all need some patience and tolerance and persistence. And, uh, mm. uh, and it will mm. come good in the end. Great advice. Great advice. And my final question, James, what is it you know about the world of media M&A today that you wish you knew all those years ago at the very beginning of your career? Uh, I think it's the, the, the power of, of network. Um, the, the earlier that you can realize that, the better, because, you know, I, I didn't necessarily go to, to the best best school or, or, or university and, and didn't necessarily have um, a great uh, natural network and, and contact base. And, and I've had to work pretty hard at developing it. And I think if, mm. if I could have appreciated that, you know, even, even a month earlier, a year earlier, you know, it, it, it just gives you extra time to, to, to work that network and, and develop your, um, your, your, your contacts, which really does, uh, really does pay off then uh, later on. Hmm. James, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Nathan. My, my, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And uh, 
I hope it hasn't been too too David Moyes esque, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> I won't get my P forty five in the morning. <laughs> Oli Solskjaer, Oli Solskjaer. I'm just, I'll just leave you with that. Um, we have been speaking with James Cross. He is currently a partner at KNL Gates. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 89 such conversations we've had now with world-class media professionals. Thank you for all your suggestions and feedback on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathanagencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and give us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Megeki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. And we're done. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>